Hello, my name is Duncan, and this is the first episode of my podcast. Today's episode is Fire and Ice, How Natural Disasters Expose Weaknesses in Deregulated Electricity Markets. I'm so glad you could join me. We have a lot to get through. Throughout this podcast, I will be breaking down the history of deregulation in the United States and focus on two natural disaster events and use those as examples to demonstrate the shortcomings of deregulated electricity markets. These case studies will argue that through a deregulated market, the priorities shift from providing quality service to consumers to generating profits, often through cutting corners and avoiding complying with regulations. I will use the 2021 winter storm disaster that hit Texas and the wildfire outbreaks in California as my case studies. I hope by the end of this, I can effectively demonstrate to you that electricity is a human right that should be controlled by the consumer. This podcast will be broken into three sections, a brief history of deregulation, then to the natural disaster case studies, and then final thoughts and alternatives moving forward. So let's get started. The United States energy sector is a patchwork of regulated and deregulated gas and electricity markets. The 48 contiguous states have varying degrees of markets. The argument for deregulation is to incentivize competition, give consumers choices of where they get their power, and overall lower their rates through competition. The opposite has happened. Since deregulation was signed in Texas in 1999, rates have skyrocketed for the vast majority of Texas's population that rely on an isolated electricity grid. California is not exempt from this. The California electricity crisis of the early 2000s was a product of a web of shady business practices established through deregulation. To understand the shortcomings of a deregulated electricity market, it is important to understand how electricity markets operate and then what occurs with deregulation. Traditionally, in a regulated electricity market, a public utility, an IOU, investor-owned utility, acting as a public utility, or an electric co-op, which we'll get to later, operate all electricity services. These entities would own and oversee power generation, transmission, distribution, and metering and billing. Deregulation, depending on the state, does away with this model. Deregulation eliminates utility monopolies, allowing outside companies to start producing electricity and sell to consumers at competitive rates. In California, deregulation was established when AB 1890, the Electricity Utility Restructuring Act, was signed in 1996. This law now allowed customers in most utility service areas to choose their generation supplier. Customers in regions managed by IOUs now had the ability to shop around for power from other providers. Electricity transmission was also restructured with deregulation. The independent system operator was established, an independent entity that took operational control away from the IOUs, but the IOUs still own and are responsible for maintaining transmission lines and pipelines. This new body was created to give new players equal opportunity to develop themselves in the new market. This independent body was meant to make sure that no utility was favored or able to block another company's power transmission. Through deregulation in 1996, California invited private companies to compete in electricity generation and share transmission lines with utilities. In Texas, deregulation looked different. Deregulation came in two waves, starting in 1995 and ending in 1999 with Senate Bill 7, which broke up the utilities. In California, utilities still existed and maintained meters, distribution, and billing. The legislation in Texas split utilities into three companies, power generators, transmission, operating power lines, and retail, customer service. 
Transmission was still regulated so as not to suddenly have new power lines flooding cities. This new market complicated electricity distribution. The bill also removed controls on wholesale electricity prices and opened the market to anyone in the state. Instead of a customer getting their power from a local generator, if prices were cheaper in a city hundreds of miles away, they could get their power from there. Furthermore, there are three electricity grids in the contiguous United States. One of those is located entirely in Texas. Because it is entirely within state lines, it is exempt from federal oversight and so is not scrutinized to the same degree as the other two interconnected grids in the U.S. And because this grid is isolated, the majority of Texas is unable to easily receive electricity from other neighboring states in the event of power loss. The seeming trend of electricity deregulation in the 90s is not an accident. It was a result of a long, coordinated lobbying effort spearheaded by the Enron Corporation. Enron, a natural gas company turned hedge fund and power supplier led by founder Kenneth Lay, lobbied the U.S. government and states in deregulation. In 1992, Enron successfully lobbied the Bush administration into passing the Energy Policy Act, which allowed states to begin electricity deregulation. The company was also able to lobby itself out of several other federal standards and regulations, such as utilities being unable to invest in unrelated businesses, hence the hedge fund. With deregulation now possible, Enron went to work. In 2000, Enron was registered to lobby in 28 states. After having successfully lobbied then-President H.W. Bush, Enron's state lobbying centered in Texas and Governor George Bush. Between 1993 and his election to president in 2000, Bush received approximately $736,800 in political contributions from the company and several hundreds of thousands in donations for his inaugural fund, as well as the maximum 10,000 in contributions for his recount effort. If donations weren't clear enough for the future president to understand, CEO Kenneth Lay sent around two dozen personal emails to Governor Bush, chiefly lobbying for deregulation in Texas, among other policies, like tax cuts that would benefit his company's bottom line. With electricity deregulation moving forward in many states, Enron entered into the wholesale electricity market as a powerhouse generator. Its success in electricity deregulation would be short-lived, however. In California, power generation was handed off completely to private wholesalers. Utilities had to buy electricity from companies like Enron. Companies like Enron could manipulate the electricity market, shutting down a plant during peak times to drive up demand and prices, creating a short-term shortage and big profits. The company was able to jack up short-term prices throughout 2000, but this all came to a head in 2001. Audio tapes released in 2005 later confirmed that Enron executives were orchestrating forced plant shutdowns to increase power demand. They knowingly scheduled a forced shutdown during a time of peak demand in January 2001 and joked about the illegality of the operation and their hope in not going to jail. That very next day, a series of rolling blackouts hit Northern California due to high demand, and without their plant online, power was knocked out to some 2 million customers and prices were driven up by billions. The audio tapes also revealed that California wasn't alone. Enron executives had been perfecting their manipulation strategy in Canada in the late 90s as well. After a series of lawsuits and federal investigations, Enron executives were indicted on fraud charges many of whom pled guilty, and the company declared bankruptcy at the end of 2001. Almost immediately into the United States experiment, experiment with deregulation, 
the new structure was manipulated for profits by its architect. In the wake of the crisis, California built new power plants to balance out demand and enacted several reforms. In Texas, Enron's home state, the market was left alone and would be vulnerable to winter storms and increased consumer demand for the next two decades. Even with some new measures in place, California's deregulated market is still vulnerable. Now, moving on to the next section. From February 14th to February 20th, the state of Texas was hit with a week of winter polar vortexes that dropped record amounts of snow across the state and knocked out power to millions of customers. By February 16th, at least 4.5 million Texans were without power. This wasn't the first winter storm in the state's history to stall power and endanger lives. After a severe winter storm in 2011 caused equipment malfunctions to one of Texas's largest power companies, Luminant, the North Texas supplier was fined $750,000, and studies were ordered to understand what happened. Only three years later, in 2014, another massive winter storm hit the state, bringing Luminant back into the spotlight. This time, their generators failed multiple times within a 12-hour period, nearly causing a total grid failure. Recommendations from the Texas Public Utility Commission, which oversees electricity utilities in the state, concluded that companies like Luminant had failed to identify critical failure points in their equipment, and after the 2014 incident, the Texas Commission moved to require energy companies to identify and resolve all of these failure points. Luminant and other companies lobbied against this, and won a better deal where they would only have to address points of failure that were already previously known about. A federal report completed in the wake of the 2011 winter storm incident made similar recommendations, arguing that Texas power companies had inadequately winterized their facilities for cold weather by failing to install extra insulation, heaters, and windbreaks. The famously conservative Texas legislator was also unable to pass any measures that would give consumers representation or regulate companies. What we are seeing here is that private power companies in the deregulated market have been able to effectively run the market on their own terms. The Public Utility Commission can make recommendations, but with deep pockets, companies have teams of lawyers and lobbyists to protect their bottom line. Regulations would endanger their profit margins. Under this system, companies are incentivized to produce more power when demand increases and prices go up. Disasters like this are actually good for profits. We learned this in California after Enron manipulated the state's power market. But let's get back to this most recent winter storm. Demand for power skyrocketed. People need heat to heat their homes. Boil water, they need to survive. This deregulated system is built on the foundation that more power will be generated when prices go up, because demand goes up. Power companies will profit off of disasters like this, at the expense of the consumer. In a call after the 2014 winter storm incident, an executive with Houston Centerpoint Energy said that in the event of another polar vortex, the company would absolutely be opportunistic and take advantage of those conditions. In this latest winter crisis, Comstock Resources, a shale drilling company operating in Texas, saw a surge in natural gas prices. The company's CFO quoted as saying, we hit the jackpot as a result of natural gas from other providers output stalling and power demand surging in the wake of freezing temperatures. And while companies and executives made big profits, many consumers found themselves with bigger bills to pay. 
sticking true to the principle that the deregulated market is all about giving customers the power to choose their power suppliers and encourage competition, many Texans are on a variable rate plan. This type of plan charges customers different rates depending on demand. During normal weather, demand doesn't suddenly skyrocket, and so customers get low prices and can use more electricity as they please. But during an extreme winter storm system, demand will skyrocket and prices will follow. Many customers were unable to switch their electricity providers fast enough and found themselves with ridiculous bills. To reflect the lack of supply and high demand, ERCOT, the state's independent system operator, ordered electricity prices to be increased from the average of $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour to $9. Texans posted their bills on social media, with charges ranging from just above $5,000 after the storm to, and some bills as high as $16,000. The combination of variable rate plans and price surges left customers across the state bewildered, especially because many didn't even realize they were on these plans. If a customer didn't shop around for a new fixed rate plan after their contract expired, they were consequently moved onto a variable rate plan by the power company. This disaster is most likely much more devastating than is being publicly claimed. The state's official death toll for the winter storm sits around 151 victims. A recent investigation from BuzzFeed News challenges this. The claim is that the state's death toll is not comprehensive enough, only including deaths directly attributable to cold weather like hypothermia, carbon monoxide poisoning, and ice road collisions, for example. It doesn't include, however, vulnerable members of the population with medical conditions sensitive to the extreme weather conditions. The report alleges that the true death toll lies anywhere between 426 and 978 people. The vast majority of Texas counties don't have medical examiner's offices, and making an appointment in a county that does is expensive. So it is difficult for families to get a comprehensive understanding of why their loved one died. The official death toll is reliant on records submitted by counties, and medical emergencies not obviously attributable to the winter weather aren't reflected in the data. As a result, there is an incomplete picture of the devastation of the storms, with many families unable to get funeral assistance from FEMA and having delays on insurance payments. Following this disaster, ERCOT CEO was fired, and seven of its board members resigned. Three commissioners of the Texas Public Utility Commission all resigned as well. Moving on, in 2018, California experienced one of its most destructive and deadliest wildfires in the state's history. The campfire ravaged Butte County in Northern California, destroying 18,804 structures and claiming the lives of 85 people. The cause of the fire was identified, with the blame resting on San Francisco-based utility PG&E. The company neglected to properly inspect and replace aging and severely worn transmission line equipment. A hook attaching power lines to the transmission tower wore away and broke, dropping power lines to the ground and igniting the fire. PG&E had not recorded an in-person climbing inspection of that tower since 2001, but they did take photos of the tower from a helicopter. This is just the latest in PG&E's history of not only failing and endangering the lives of customers that rely on them for power. Going back a decade to 2010, a natural gas pipeline managed by PG&E exploded in San Bruno, California, 
sending up a massive fireball into the community that lasted for several hours. The explosion killed eight people and injured 58 and destroyed over 100 homes. PG&E's negligence was quickly identified as the culprit. Many of the thousands of pipelines running throughout the state, like that in San Bruno, were built before 1970, which was when federal regulations for pressure testing were put into effect. The poorly built pipeline was grandfathered in with thousands of miles of other pipes, and PG&E never bothered to test the old pipes since then. They continued to deteriorate for decades. Documents released also revealed that PG&E's VP of Regulatory Affairs, Brian Cherry, and Paul Clanon, the executive director of California's Public Utilities Commission, the agency that oversees the state's utilities and regulates them, were close friends. 65,000 emails released identified communications between the two and how they conspired to replace witnesses set to testify before the Senate. Cherry was fired from PG&E and Clanon stepped down later. PG&E was fined by the California Public Utilities Commission for $1.6 billion in order to test the integrity of 1,800 miles of transmission pipes, a feat that will take about a dozen years. In 2016, PG&E was found guilty on six federal felony charges, five counts of willfully breaking federal gas safety laws, and one count of obstruction of the federal investigation, and sentenced to five years probation. In 2020, the company pled guilty in court to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter and one felony count of unlawfully setting a fire. The company was fined $3.5 million by the state and reached a $25.5 billion settlement for victims' families and the county, plunging the utility into bankruptcy for the second time in the last several decades. The utility declared bankruptcy in the wake of California's power crisis initiated by Enron's market manipulation. But don't worry, PG&E will be fine. In fact, after the company's criminal conviction in 2018, PG&E lobbied almost the entirety of the California legislature. California lawmakers, including Governor Newsom, accepted a sum of $4.4 million in political contributions during the 2018 election cycle, well after the utility company had been given a federal felony conviction. After these contributions, Governor Newsom in 2019 signed Assembly Bill 1054, the Wildfire Fund. The bill does a number of things establishing a safety certification program that would encourage electricity corporations to invest in new safety measures to prevent wildfires. A company that has earned a safety certification will be a lot harder to prove responsible for starting a wildfire. These new safety measures for companies also meant increased costs, which PG&E was happy to push on ratepayers. In 2019, they proposed a billion dollar rate increase for their customers. The bill also establishes the wildfire fund from which it gets its name, a $21 billion fund paid for by Californians to relieve the utility companies of paying the costs of wildfire damages they are definitely going to cause in the future. California seemingly learned its lesson after the Enron scandal in the early 2000s, but in fact we have instead allowed an even more aggressive corporation to endanger the lives of its customers. Now to the final section alternatives and moving forward. That was a lot of information that I just dumped on you and I want to slow down and reassess everything I just talked about. This method doesn't work and there are the tried and true arguments when it comes to these sorts of things that I just want to dispute here. 
I talked about dirty executives stealing from customers and lobbying politicians to help their company's profits. I use these examples to show that private corporations cannot be trusted with the consumer's interests. They will choose profits. I think back to the argument, it's only a few bad apples, that we've heard so loudly now in our national conversation revolving around police abolition. Yes, it was only a few bad apples. Those bad apples happened to run some of the largest power companies in the country and routinely failed and endangered the lives of Texans and Californians by not adequately inspecting, reinforcing, and repairing machinery. They were at the top. They were the face of their companies. The culture came from them. A few bad apples ruins the bunch is how the saying actually goes. Then, one of the foundations of deregulation, the main selling point, is that it will benefit customers. People will get to choose where they buy their electricity from. Their rates will go down. It will encourage competition, etc. In the examples I gave you, this is just false. Rates have increased for Texans. They were slammed with exuberant bills after the winter storms on contracts that many of them didn't even know they had. PG&E customers in the Bay had their rates increased to cover the cost of PG&E's consistent negligence in preventing wildfires from their equipment. What freedom is that? Where's the competition when a company lobbies an entire state into giving it what it wants? How does the consumer benefit from that? They don't. Whether it be wildfires or winter storms, natural disaster events have exposed the limitations and willful ignorance that comes from a deregulated electricity market. Companies fail to prepare against and sometimes cause disasters through their inaction, and tragically, many people lost their lives because of it. I believe that electricity now in the modern area we live in is a human right. We cannot live without it. It is ingrained into every fabric of our livelihoods. It should be treated as a human right. We need to transition our thinking away from electricity as a commodity. It is a necessity now. If you can't afford your power bill, you can't heat your home. You can't boil water or charge your phone. I talk so much about the customer, the consumer. We need to rethink our roles in this equation. We shouldn't be the customers. We should be the owners, the decision makers of our electricity. One thing I found in my research were electric co-ops. And it sounds exactly how it is. Member-owned and run, co-ops deliver power primarily to rural communities. Members are directly involved in the company. The board is elected from members by its members, democratically, if you will. Members are also involved in decision-making processes. They have a voice in determining how the co-op operates. And margins and revenues generated are redistributed back to members as capital credits that represent equity in the co-op. On top of this, according to data from the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association and the EPA, co-ops are increasing their use of renewable fuels and reducing harmful emissions. Between 2005 and 2019, co-ops reduced sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide emissions by 83 and 69% respectively. Co-ops are also investing in broadband networks for rural communities and improving energy storage technology. Co-ops in the United States as of 2019 served some 42 million Americans in 48 states. Another example of communities controlling their electricity is in California specifically. California's community choice aggregation gives member communities the ability to choose how their electricity is produced. There are several models of how this is implemented. 
An independent agency can be established that represents the interests of several communities at a multi-jurisdictional level, or a single city or county establishes its own CCA that the city or county retains full control over. Through these structures, cities still rely on IOUs to maintain power transmission, but they have a choice in where their power comes from. This has promoted the development of new wind, solar, and renewable fuel sources. And just recently, Congress members Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman introduced legislation to the House of Representatives to establish a transition towards viewing electricity as a human right, supporting electric cooperatives and municipal utilities. I don't see this issue as a matter of if, but a matter of when. When are we going to stop letting corporations sell us what is our right? When are we going to have safe and reliable access to electricity? Natural disasters are going to continue happening, and corporations have proven time and again that they are unwilling to properly maintain their systems and will continue to endanger the lives of their customers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and let me know if you'd like to hear more topics like this in the future. Have a great day.